Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Packer. I'm Itamar Srulovic. Together we run a couple of Middle Eastern restaurants in London. And we also do our fair share of food writing. And welcome to Series 6 of Honey & Co. It's a series of talks we host in our little deli Honey & Spice on Warren Street. We talk to chefs and cookbook writers and waiters and managers and people we admire from the world of food. This season we got to meet some incredible people, we've cooked their food, we've learned so much, we are so excited to share this with you, I hope you enjoy as much as we did. Today we are joined by a true food hero of ours, Tim Anderson. Tim's an American who fell in love with Japanese food and cooking, made and devoted his life to it. It's his obsession, profession and passion. Tim wrote the book Tokyo Stories, it's a book as exuberant, as vibrant as the city is. We had a magnificent evening talking about cocktails in a can from vending machines. We talked about sandwiches from convenience stores, and it was great fun. I have to say that I first well, saw this guy, Tim, uh, on MasterChef. That was the only season of MasterChef I've ever watched. I think, really, I think it was 2010 or 11, something 2011, like that. yeah. It was the first year it was on BBC One. Yeah, yeah. Was, I was not working that year. Like right. I was Neither was I. Little. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. But this is the first, uh, the first season, the only season that I've ever watched, and I was rooting for you so much. Man. Thank you. I have a soft spot for the food of Japan. Actually, I like your food. Mm. Please help me give a big hand to this guy, Tim Anderson. Thank you. Always meet your heroes. We are going to talk about Tim's new book, Tokyo Story. Sorry, Tim. Yeah. From Wisconsin to Tokyo. Yeah. How? how? Well, uh, how, how did this happen? <laughs> I I was I've always been a nerd. My whole life I've been a nerd. And when yeah. I was a kid, you're I would, amongst friends here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is where all the food nerds nerd power, yeah, nerd yeah. pride in this yeah. room. I can feel it. Um, so and and I was particularly a nerd about sort of Japanese pop culture when I was a kid. When I was a teenager, I was into video games and J-pop and a little bit of anime and manga, but not really that much. But also I was into cooking and like when I'd come home from school in the afternoon, I'd switch on the TV and it was always Food Network. 
Um, and I'd watch like Emeril Lagasse and Martin Yan and uh, Anthony Bourdain was first starting off back then. So like I just watch Food Network all night. And there was a show that came on the Food Network in America called Iron Chef, which uh, has gone on to be remade in America and in the UK. It was short lived, but they did it here. It was a cooking competition show from Japan that just blew my mind. Like I'd never seen anything like it. It was a really over the top show. Like just in terms of the style in which it was presented, like high drama, high drama. Yeah. It takes place at a place called uh, Kitchen Stadium, and <laughs> and the host was this guy named Chairman Kaga, who was a theater actor in Japan, and he dressed like Liberace, like he was a Japanese Liberace. Um, they had these Iron Chefs who were supposed to be the you know the the very top chefs in their category in Japan, French, Chinese, Japanese, and Italian. They have challenges from all over the world who were equally as good. Um, that have secret ingredients that started off each battle, they called them. Um, and I, some of the ingredients were just mind-blowing to me, um, things I'd never seen before growing up in Wisconsin. And then the food was incredible. Not just the Japanese food, but that level of cooking in general. And it was dubbed over like an old kung fu movie because uh. like, they had like play-by-play commentary. It was like a sporting match. Yeah. So I watched this show, and like I, I feel like they wouldn't show this show now the way TV is. Like It wouldn't have been put on the air because it's too weird. But back then they were just like, ah, we got a 10 o'clock at night slot, whatever. We'll get this crazy show from Japan you on. You say that about so many things. It's true. So like, yeah. All of the 90s, you can say that about. Yeah, but even like a Cook's Tour, Anthony Bourdain's first show, when that came on, it was on at like 11 o'clock at night because like it was like too crazy because <laughs> they had a meeting Cobra Hearts in, in Vietnam and stuff like that. But anyway, this show just blew my mind and I was like, wow. And I was already interested in, in Japanese pop culture and stuff. So I was like, I want to learn more about Japanese food. I'd never seen anything like it. So I went to the very few Japanese restaurants that we had in Wisconsin, in, in Milwaukee. I'd drive up there and eat sushi and yakitori and udon and basic stuff when I was in high school. And they'd be like, oh, that's that weird kid again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's here again, yeah. ordering the fried rice. Because that was like my favorite kind of, that was my favorite thing. Like sushi, I would try. And I, like there was a lot of Japanese food I didn't like because it was weird to me. Like I, when I first had sushi, it wasn't the raw fish that was weird. It was the seaweed. We have nothing like that flavor or texture in Wisconsin, in like traditional Wisconsin cuisine. We have things a bit like raw fish, like we have smoked salmon and stuff like that. So that kind of thing wasn't that weird. Easier to relate to. Yeah, but like I remember having to acquire the taste for for nori seaweed for sure. I don't know if you ever listened to the Kitchen Cabinet where Tim is on, (laughs) but it's the very famous uh, Mama Anderson uh, cookbook. Mm. No seaweed yes. there. No seaweed. No seaweed. Although, weirdly, there's some bizarre kind of Japanese connections going back in my family history. Like, my grandparents had a Japanese exchange student in the 70s, I think, 60s or 70s. So, there's actually, okay, like, that's a leaving through connection. my family recipe books. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's recipes for tempura and, like, a green tea cocktail in my family recipe box from the 70s. It's, like, kind of crazy. And there's a Kikoman soy sauce factory in Wisconsin because we grow, <laughs> seriously, because we grow really good uh, soybeans and wheat. So they put a factory there. And so we always had Kikoman soy sauce in the house. But anyway, it was just, it was quite weird to me, most uh, you know, starting off Japanese food. But then I, I loved a lot of it. And I, um, I knew there was something kind of interesting about it. And I moved to L.A. to go to college there. And um, that was a conscious decision because I knew that there would be more Japanese culture and more Japanese food that I could sink my teeth into there. Uh, and that's where I discovered like ramen or konomiyaki and yakitori properly and like Japanese soul food stuff that that's what I really came to love. And I studied Japanese food history and, and food culture and I got to go to Japan on a research grant in 2005. So um, you basically got a grant to eat noodles. Basically. That's, that's, <laughs> no, seriously. Well, it started yeah. off as, a, as exactly that. It started off as a, a research project on regional noodles in Japan. 
But what it became was about local food museums. There's a lot of, you travel from place to place and there's always different local specialties and a lot of them, they have actual museums set up to celebrate them. So like in Yokohama, there's this amazing ramen museum. I went to a mountain town in uh, Nagano Prefecture that, that has a soba museum. Um, there's a salmon museum up in Hokkaido. There's beer museums and sake museums all over the place. Um, the weirdest one was a salt and tobacco museum, um, which is not quite a food museum, I guess. Yeah, well, half. Yeah, but that's because uh, the salt, well, it doesn't matter. They're, they're weirdly linked by this one big corporation in Japan. But anyway, um, the more I learned about Japanese food and food culture, the more interesting it became because I realized that there's always something new and unexpected to try and to and to learn about. Um, and I lived in Fukuoka Prefecture in the south of Japan in Kyushu. Uh, and Kyushu was historically like where all the foreigners came into Japan. Yeah. Because it's the closest to mainland Asia and it's closest to the, the Spice Islands. So like Portuguese, Dutch and British traders would come up through there. Uh, the Koreans and the Chinese would, would come over into Nagasaki or Fukuoka as well. Then you started getting the American military in there at the end of the 19th century. So so Kyushu is where you get this real kind of, I don't want to call it a melting pot, but it's a real mix of, of things that you don't really expect from Japanese food. And actually, the more you learn about regional places, regional specialties throughout Japan, the more you see that kind of like blending yeah. into other cultures uh, all over the place, actually. But that, but you were kind of on a traject on a very scholarly trajectory. You never, mm. yes. <laughs> or were you? I mean, it sounds like it. It, w it wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be a you know iron chef. It's I, kind of you're right. No, I, I probably I think about this a lot. I probably should have been a historian, not a chef, <laughs> because I'm better at reading and writing than I am at cooking. <laughs> well, you know, I've I've. Actually, I, I can I can argue that point. But. Yeah, but no, that's what really fascinates me is is these really kind of obscure, unusual things about about Japanese cooking. I love like the mainstream Japanese cuisine as well. But what's exciting to me whenever I go to Japan and when I lived there was being able to go to a new place or or even just staying in one city and finding these new things that have this amazing, interesting history usually as well behind them. So how how did you cross the line? from food research or food historian or historian to actually saying, Cooking. hey, yeah. Um, Which well, is it was it's always, not a natural leap. You know, no, it was always a hobby. Yeah. Uh, and one of the first things I ever learned to cook was fried rice because it's easy. Anybody can cook fried rice. You, you cook rice and then you, or you have leftover rice from a takeaway or whatever. And then it'll kind of take anything. You, you just learn how to stir fry something and how to season it. Yeah, you go from there. But uh, it was a hobby. And living in Japan was amazing because I made a point whenever I went and did my shop at the supermarket every week to try something that I didn't know what it was. Because if you live in... Well, you could do the same thing in London, probably. Like, London supermarkets are really interesting because depending on where you live, they'll have stuff from that represents a local yeah. community. So, like, in South London, in Lewisham, where I live, um, you can get, like, saltfish and ackee in our local Sainsbury's. Yeah. So like in Japan, I would go to the shop and like, instead of just buying like the normal stuff that I knew how to cook or, or knew what it was, I'd buy stuff that I deliberately was like, I don't know what this is. I'm going to take it home and figure it out, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was great for my language skills as well, because then I'd have to learn new words. I'd have to look up recipes in Japanese. So yeah, that's how it started. Just like, you know, I, I grew up watching cooking shows. Like I said, I always, I always loved food, and so cooking it as a hobby was natural. And uh, I, I didn't think about doing it professionally, really, 
until I moved here and I saw MasterChef and I was like, oh, that looks, that's a fun Vaguely thing familiar. to do. Yeah. Well, you know, and, it all started. On and I just yeah. kind of, to be honest, it sounds funny, but I kind of fell into it because I just applied online. It takes like 20 minutes. I didn't think anything of it. Seriously. And I never thought I'd win. Never. I thought I, from day one, I thought I'm, I'm not the best cook in the room which is what that show is all about. But I thought I could maybe be the weirdest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which would maybe keep me in the, in the game for a while. Yeah. I, I, mean, I really I, didn't think I I'd think win. It, I think this kind of strategy worked for our current prime minister. So why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad strategy. You have yeah, to just yeah. be the guy who they're like, well, that guy's what doing something. What is he something. doing? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, then, then yeah. at the end, to be honest, like we'd all... For most of MasterChef, um, it's elimination. So you don't have to be the best. You just have to not be the worst. And it's not until the very end when you do have to be the best. And I guess I just barely clinched it in the end. Because, I mean, after that, there, there was uh, Nanban, your restaurant. So when I, when I moved here from Japan, there wasn't the kind of Japanese food that I loved, specifically yeah. ramen. We had, you know, Wagamama, and we had some okay little places, like family-run places, but we didn't have the really, like, rich pork broth tonkotsu ramen that I loved and I fell in love with, in, first in L.A. and then in, in uh, Japan. Um, so I, th I always wanted to open a ramen shop, but then a lot of other people did that as well <laughs> before yeah. I did. So, like, Bone Daddy's Tonkotsu, they opened in 2011, something like that. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, that's been done. But also, there's still all this regional food that I think is really interesting. Yeah. So let's let's do a whole like kind of Kyushu Southern Japan concept, and that's what Nanban is. Because it's, I mean, it is a very like your brand or your type of of Japanese, let's say, cooking and offering actually in this book and the, and the previous one. There's something very particular about it. It's it's kind of soul food, maybe. Is that? Yeah, I chose. So, like, the, my first book, Nanban, uh, is the subtitle is Japanese Soul Food, and that's what we use at the restaurant as well. Yeah. And I, I can't take credit for that. That I stole from Ipudo, the ramen chain. They opened in New York uh, in Manhattan years ago, and that was their slogan when they opened. I thought that's really clever because soul food in America, first of all, comes from the South. Yeah. It comes from the South of the United States, and also it's got its roots in, like, immigrant communities. So, like, ramen is a great example because it comes from the South of Japan, um, and it's originally a Chinese dish. Like it was, it was originally made by Chinese expats in Japan. Um, but uh, but also not just ramen. There's all these other things that come from immigrant communities within Japan that I thought was really interesting, and that's why I use the soul food label. But also, it's kind of expanded now to be just anything that's kind of like heart hearty and probably unhealthy. Usually, like a lot of salt, sugar, fat, that kind of thing. Yeah, which is. The kind of Japanese food, to be fair, that I really love, and it also goes with like izakaya style dining, like really casual stuff, and a lot of home cooking. That's just like hearty, puts a smile on your face, conducive to drinking beer, yeah. or sake, like yeah. Which is it's which is you know convivial and fun and easy, yeah. and you know we we kind of we can maybe think about Japanese food as very intimidating yeah and, you know oh my you need to learn 17 years how to cook a pot of rice and things like that and don't get me wrong it is that also like, yeah if you want to make sushi and make it well it's very hard like you can make sushi at home no problem like you follow the steps and it's 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 a perfectly doable thing but if you want to make really good sushi or anything ramen for example um it takes a lot of practice it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of learning yeah, yeah, but there's there's another side to Japanese food as well. Yeah, but I think this is kind of what what we we do love about Japanese 
food and Japanese culture is that kind of specification and yeah you know the expertise and you know the seeking out for good ingredients and things like that well that's another good point is like you know I make ramen and I, I make pretty good ramen <laughs> um, I don't make the best ramen but like you couldn't put me in a sushi restaurant like I, I couldn't do it like I can make decent enough sushi but if, if you put me in a sushi restaurant in, in Japan they would throw me out in about five minutes angrily like <laughs> I can make ramen but it is it's a specialist thing like most restaurants if you can even call them that in Japan most places you go to eat they'll specialize in one thing like they'll do yakitori and that's it or they'll do sushi and that's it and likewise you couldn't take a great sushi chef and say make a bowl of ramen it's a very different thing and yeah. like we're used to in this country I think and in America and most places being able to go to a restaurant and ordering like anything you want um, which is not I think how you make the best product and I think that they understand that in Japan they specialize this book we've been to Tokyo me and my wife 12 years ago and it's it's just such an amazing place yeah and this book is you know for, for those of you who have been this is you know you, you just want to go again and those of you who haven't been you'll be aching to go really <laughs> you'll be aching to go because it just, I feel, just transfers so much of what is fun and amazing and incredible about this city. Thank you. And it is, it is so overwhelming. And it's like yeah. now I'm trying to think, how did we even get from one place to another? Because there's no, nothing's in English. Nobody. No, not really. But it's somehow it works. Well, part of it is that people are really helpful. So nice. Yeah. yeah. I remember my, I don't remember if it was my first trip to Tokyo or, or my second, but I didn't speak Japanese at that point. I still barely speak Japanese. But I was standing looking at a map of the subway system in Tokyo, just clearly, totally confused. And an old lady came up and like... There's always an old lady. Oh, always an old lady. There's always an old lady. It was like, where are you trying to go? To go? And she, I was like, I'm trying to get here. And she took me over to the machine and she like helped me buy the ticket and everything. And that wasn't the only time that happened to me. In There's Japan. always that an all old the time. lady. They take you everywhere. I think they kind of... <laughs> they're kind of the tourist board. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. <laughs> anyway, this is, you know, it's such an incredible city. There's so much, you know, going everywhere you look. It's such an assault on the senses. Mm. And, you know, even in the first page of the book, I'll, I'll paraphrase, it says, you know, it talks a little bit about Paris syndrome. Do you know, do you hear about Paris syndrome? That people go to Paris and then they're really disappointed and they get depressed. Yeah. And because it's all kind of, you know... McDonald's, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but you, in Tokyo, however hyped up about going there and however, you know, high your expectations are, you're always yeah. never prepared. Absolutely. Yeah, you, no. You're always underprepared. It's, it's incredible. It's such an assault. I mean, I went to Tokyo for the first time. I was either 17 or 18. And I, you couldn't have been more excited than me. I was so excited to go to Tokyo. But it was so overwhelming because I'd been to Chicago and maybe L.A. at that point, but those cities are just nothing compared to Tokyo. It's so big and so dense. I was just watching um, uh, Wild Japan, this BBC nature documentary about Japan. They mentioned how Tokyo is 35 million people. That's half of the U.K. in one little, I mean, it's not a little city, but it's, it's, it's not that much bigger than London. Like, it's yeah. insanely dense. And so you get there and just... Most people will say in Shinjuku, which is like one of the biggest entertainment districts and business districts, and walking around Shinjuku for the first time, like you just you're looking everywhere, up and down and all over because there's neon and signs and lights, and like you don't most of you probably wouldn't understand the language I didn't at that point, and it's just like everything it's kind of dizzying, it's crazy, yeah, but it's great it's <laughs> so it's so exhilarating, yeah, it's so exhilarating, and I mean, you do want someone you know be it an, an old lady or, or whatever, but you, you want someone to kind of take you by the hand and show you behind the scene. And mm. I think, you know, I would love to go to Tokyo with you. Well, let's go. This, this, let's go. I <laughs> think that'd be awesome. But I think this book is kind of the, the alternative because it has so much insight into the town and into its food and its, you know, kind of little nooks and crannies. There's, it's full of, you know recommendations yeah but i want you this is what i wanted i wanted you to read well, i had so much fun with this book actually okay <laughs> so this is actually really accurate so this is what i call a, a typical day on a trip to tokyo start the day on a toilet more sophisticated than your car <laughs> snarf some stringy sticky smelly fermented soybeans for breakfast get lost in the labyrinthine obstacle course of shinjuku station have a peaceful stroll around the imperial Pal palace gardens Get lunch at a robot, maid, butler, cat, owl, or Hello Kitty cafe. Lose an hour and several thousand yen at one of Akihabara's multi-story arcades. Ogle the tourists and touristy tat along Nakamise Dori. Purchase some surprisingly beautiful hand-carved chopsticks and a bottle of fizzy ramune. Kick off the evening with an all-you-can-drink lager deal. Head to an izakaya and eat all the food. Drink shochu, make friends, do karaoke, accidentally walk into a brothel, walk back out quickly, a little more shochu, 
Ham sandwich from the Kambini. Hello again, fancy toilet. Bedtime. <laughs> so one thing that's in there that's interesting to me is the stroll through a palace garden. Because one thing I learned writing this book and, and going there to, f- to photograph it and researching it was that actually, I've never lived in Tokyo. And so I only have an experience of going there as like a tourist or, or sometimes for work. But um, when you live there, you do find these pockets of like serenity. Yeah. Um, which was like, I never like knew about that in Tokyo. I just thought it's all unbroken, crazy city as far as you can go. But we went to little local temples. We went to neighborhoods looking for certain local foods that are just neighborhoods like that have little old ladies pushing shopping carts and kids going to school and peaceful gardens and stuff like that. So this is another thing, like even even if you just go to Tokyo, there's so much to explore. You keep finding new sides to it. I've been to Tokyo eight or nine times and you'd think I'd be kind of like done with it by now. But there's, this is like what I'm saying. There's always something new. Also wrote the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's always something new to find and, and always a new angle to, to view Tokyo in. I want to talk about the itinerary because yeah. of, uh, I think traditionally the first day in Tokyo, you kind of ride the jet lag. And go to right. the fish market. Ah, this yes. This is what you do. Yeah, although that you don't fish, do that anymore. Well, no, the fish market, Skiji, uh, the famous fish market, is now closed and has been uh, relocated to Toyosu. And it was always a bit kind of dicey going there because you had to kind of sneak in. They didn't really want tourists there. Yeah. And when we went this last time, which is one of the last opportunities we had to shoot there before it's closed forever, uh, they were very, very strict. They wouldn't let us in until after trading hours, which is totally understandable. But uh, the new market, I, I think it's a kind of a shame. You'll never recapture the how Skiji was. It was a very like rough and ready, gritty kind of kind of dirty fish market. Well, actually. for Japan, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which means um, immaculately clean in every conceivable way. But it was amazing. I remember the first time I went there, which was years ago. Just the the sights and the sounds and the smells of of all the seafood being prepared and all kinds of seafood and so fresh. Yeah. So fresh. I remember seeing they had prawns that they'd package up in these little nice wooden boxes with the plastic with plastic wrap over them, still kicking inside that plastic wrap. And and, and sea urchins that people were carving out and taking the, the eggs out of and then lining them up neatly in packages and tuna the size of like me <laughs> that people were, were putting on band saws and cutting off their heads and, and these knives that were like actual swords that they had to use to cut these these tuna down and then buckets of guts everywhere. <laughs> it was just like there was a carnage to it. But there was also an order like and, and you could see sort of like order being uh, order coming out of chaos. Yeah. Basically, it was it was amazing. And then uh, you get to go to a sushi place right around the corner for breakfast and have some of the freshest fish you'll ever have for su- for your sushi breakfast. But now they've got like uh, I don't know I haven't been to the new market. They've got special viewing platforms for tourists and uh, and restaurant arcades and stuff all set up so that you don't interfere with the people who are actually yeah. working in the market, which is an issue. Yeah, I think it'll be quite just as soulful and interesting in about 100, 150 years. Yeah. Like <laughs> once, just need to give it some time. Once it's run down. Yeah, yeah. once it's just let it, you know, tumble yeah. a little bit. But there is so much in terms of, you know, the food in Tokyo. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, but just the food. There is so much going on. Like, how did you even start breaking it down? Like, how... Tell, tell, tell us about the kind of structure of the book. How did yeah, you, it's hard, it's hard because Tokyo is so there's there's so much there and it's hard to condense down into I don't know 80 recipes or however many we have in here especially when I was trying to give some background information on each one 
But I wanted to basically provide a, a good, thorough snapshot of Tokyo at every level, because there are many, many levels, and that's how I structured the book. So the first chapter is based on Depachika, which are department store basements,、um, which is how I introduce ingredients, because department store food halls in Japan are a great way to see, well, first of all, sort of the legendary Japanese. Produce like expensive fruit and fantastic quality seafood and stuff like that, but also all the international food that people in Tokyo and, and in other parts of Japan are eating. So you'll always find great、uh, French pastries in, in the department store food halls and things like that, and great wine and cheese and spices、um, because it's a very cosmopolitan city. So that's the first chapter. Then we move up to what we call lower ground floor, and that's、um, convenience stores and vending machines,、um, which are Excellent in Japan.、Um, usually, you go to a country, any country, and convenience stores are the last place you'd find good food. But in Japan,、um, they have amazing distribution models and, and logistics so that the food is always good, it's always fresh. They really have their like, systems worked out, everything is well stocked.、Um, I, was, I was so. When we were there, I think we kind of just passed it by. And、yeah, got it. That we've no, you gotta, you gotta go into those convenience stores and、yeah. just even if you're just looking for like interesting flavors of crisps, which are great, like you can get like wasabi beef and ones flavored <laughs> like different kinds of ramen and stuff like that, and cocktails in a can, which are really nice.、Uh, but also, like the fried chicken is surprisingly good from a convenience store because they fry it there, they fry it on premises, they're not just like getting it frozen and heating it up. Um, they have little fryers and they have this stuff called oden, which is like a, a dashi based stew that they have sat in this vat of dashi. And you pick out the ingredients you want from it on skewers and you pay by the skewer. They hand it to you in a big plastic bucket and they top it up with hot dashi and hot mustard. It's just the best thing on like a cold, rainy day to stick your nose into the billowing dashi vapor.、Um, So, like convenience stores, you're not going to get the best food in Japan, but you'll kind of be missing out if you don't eat at a convenience store at least once. The sandwiches, the rice balls, even the noodles and the salads are great. A lot of love for Kambini. <laughs>、uh, then we move up to the first floor, which I focus on、um, local specialties in Tokyo. And some of those are just like Tokyo specific versions of national dishes, like different kinds of ramen or gyoza or sushi,、uh, which originated in Tokyo. Or you get really unusual. Super local things like monjayaki, which is like、uh, it's, a, it's a batter filled with vegetables and、uh, like a lot of chopped cabbage and sauce that you cook on a griddle in front of you, but it never really solidifies. So it's like eating melted cheese. You scrape it off the griddle in front of you, and it's, it's weird, but it's delicious. And you get these kind of fisherman community、um, specialties like fukagawa rice, which is a clam rice dish because clams are really plentiful. Uh, and cheap in Tokyo Bay, but they're, they're super local. They're like a strictly East Tokyo thing.、Um, but that's some of the most interesting food to me in Tokyo because you can't really get it anywhere else. Then the next level is about regional Japanese food that you can get in Tokyo as well. Like I said before, like a, a lot of my favorite food in Japan is super regional. You have to go to a certain place to get it. But because so many people move to Tokyo from other parts of the country, they bring their food with them. One of the best examples is Ainu food. So the Ainu are an indigenous,、um, like Aborigine group in the north of Japan. Who have been assimilated into Japanese culture, and it's really, really rare to find their food anywhere, even in the north. But you can get Ainu food in Tokyo, and it's really, really interesting. They do things with like foraged wild herbs and cured salmon and venison, which is quite unusual in Japan. So, from all, all over Japan, you can like get a nice tasting tour of the country just within Tokyo.、Uh, then we move up to international food, and、um, some of that is just 
food from elsewhere, food from other countries that's just done really well in Tokyo, like uh, pizza. There's great Neapolitan pizza in Japan now, but there's also like kind of dirty garbage pizza. <laughs> like uh, they do like the Korean barbecue yeah. pizza dominoes in Japan, which is good for another reason. Um, or French pastries in the shape of Totoro, the anime character. I love the, um, the linguine. Oh, yeah. The, so there's a recipe in here for uh, sea urchin linguine, which is like super Japanese, but also like super Italian. Like you couldn't really place it in either country. Like yeah. it depends on who's making it, where it's being made. So there's a lot of great crossover stuff like that. And Korean barbecue, there's a huge Korean population in Tokyo. So you got to get Korean barbecue when you go to Japan or to, or to Tokyo. Anyway, then the, the last, oh, then there's a Tokyo at home chapter, which is all about uh, the kind of food you can make in Tokyo in a tiny Tokyo kitchen because apartments in Tokyo tend to be very, very small. Yeah, you know? this, this I found really interesting because this, I think most of us going will not have access to this, yeah. t- this type of cooking. Well, I haven't had much. I've had a few friends in Tokyo who have been in their flats and like yeah. it's literally you have a sink and like a two ring electric burner and a rice cooker. And that's it. And it's like, well, what do you, what can you make with that? And it actually what, turns what out... What can't you make with it? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can make quite a lot. Um, but they don't usually have ovens, so there's not a lot of that. Um, but what you do have in Tokyo, if, even if you have a tiny kitchen, is access to some amazing ingredients. Even if it's not, like, the most expensive stuff, like, even the... Even the basic grocery store stuff or convenience store stuff is really good. Yeah. Tokyo, like home cooking and, and Japanese home cooking in general is, is simple because it has to be, but also really, really delicious because the ingredients are so good. Anyway, then the last chapter is uh, called Tokyo Modern. So it's about like modernist gastronomy and, and fine dining and also cocktails. Cocktail or two, yeah. Yeah, in, in Tokyo, including um, one that's inspired by a place called Gen Yamamoto, which does cocktail tasting menus, which sounds dangerous, but they're not very big. Um, and he structures them like a traditional Japanese kaiseki meal. So they're all based on seasonal local produce from all over Japan made into cocktail form. So like you'll have a great tomato cocktail. I want to show the picture because yeah. it's so mouthwateringly good. So he'll feature on the menu like this is made from grapes from Yamanashi Prefecture or this is made from milk from Hokkaido. There's the umeboshi martini. That's yeah. So high up on my list. It's uh, that's a strong one. That one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, feels potent. But like this is the thing about Tokyo. It's first of all, there's good food at every level. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You, you hardly have to spend any money. Yeah, this is what this is what I, I love that you have kind of the super fancy, you know, mm. top top ingredient cocktail at the kind of higher end, but then you get a cocktail from the vending machine. Absolutely. And yeah. it's excellent. It's really, really yeah. good. Dry shochu highball from the vending machine. People always say, oh, Tokyo is very expensive. It's a very expensive trip. And I always kind of get that impression too, because I always end up so poor after I go to Tokyo. But I realize it's not because everything is more expensive. It's just because everything is awesome and you want to buy everything. You want one of each. You're yeah. constantly just spending money because it's like, wow, look at that thing. I'm going to get that. And you're spending money all day long. Even if it's cheap stuff, it adds up. Yeah. yeah. Just for the packaging, actually. Yeah. Going back to the department store food halls, like going into like the, um, the sweets uh, section of, of those food halls. They're just beautiful. Like... And they, they'll have a range of both traditional Japanese sweets, which are usually kind of like bean and jelly and chestnut based. But then you move on from those to the French stuff and they have these gorgeous Mont Blancs and Perry breasts and stuff like that, which are way better than most of the French yeah. pastries you get in France, by yeah. the way. And I love France and I love French pastries, but um, 
It's just incredible. Like I, I spend hours and hours in in department store food halls every time I'm there, and, and loads of money. Yeah. <laughs> Always take an empty bag. Always take an empty suitcase to Japan so that you can fill it up with stuff to bring back. I mean, this is this is another. This is why I thought this book is such a great guidebook because on every recipe there's a reference to where's the best place to go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, which is one of the best places. It's hard yeah. to pick the best, but yeah. Uh, it's funny, like you've written cookbooks and um, the thing you want when you write cookbooks is for people to cook the recipes and to enjoy them, right? Yeah. But with this one, I want that, obviously, but I also want people to go to Japan, to go to Tokyo and, and see it for themselves because it's just like, it's so fun. It's just so fun. And, and uh, it, also, it doesn't matter if you're not interested in Japanese food or Japanese culture. You, you'll obviously get that and, and engage with that. But like I said, like if you just want to go try some great pizza or French food or Chinese food, um, Tokyo's got it all. Like it's it's a great city for anybody. Honestly, I I really believe that. Yeah, and I I think you know this book really, you know, for me really took took me there. Tell me about a few things that you've discovered writing this book that you didn't that caught you by surprise. So I always think of Tokyo as having no real local food. Like a lot of capital cities are the same um, because local food is so often tied to agriculture. Yeah. And also to uh, local foods come up, I think, often because people feel like they need to invent them because they need to feel proud of, of, of what they have around them. And if you're the capital city and you're a big, important place, you don't need to do that because you're like, we're the best already. It doesn't matter. You come and you eat what we have. So I never thought of Tokyo as having local food because it doesn't really have agriculture. But what I neglected to think about or consider was that it's always had fishing. So there's a huge amount of, of interesting seafood dishes that I didn't know about in Japan. And also, I, I learned more about sushi researching this, which I think it's interesting to trace its roots back a bit because now we know it as raw fish on vinegared rice. And how that started was um, from the same tradition as fish sauce in Southeast Asia and, and salted preserved fish. So that came up by China and the, the sort of primordial sushi is called funazushi. What it is is you take rice, uh, fish, a whole fish and cooked rice and salt and you pack them together. And then the salt starts to ferment the rice and the lactic acid that comes from the fermentation preserves a fish and you eat this kind of rotten fish rice thing and selling it yeah, yeah yeah well it's not very popular anymore in japan but you still wonder you, why you can't yeah. get it yeah but over time they realize oh we can skip a step we don't have to ferment this we can just salt and vinegar the rice um, and that'll help preserve the rice and the fish and then they stop preserving it all together and just started eating it fresh. And that's how we have sushi. So it's like this very uniquely Japanese thing, but it came from this much older, more distant tradition. And then you have uh, something like tsukudani, which is a very, very economical recipe that I love. Tsukudani is preserved seaweed, sometimes like baby fish or shellfish, but more often uh, seaweed. So, like, if you've ever made dashi at home, you know it starts with kombu, which is dried kelp, and you infuse it into water, kind of like a tea. Um, and then you have this rehydrated kombu that you may not know what to do with. Um, it's still delicious, and there's still a lot of uh, nutrients in it. So what you can do is basically boil it down in a lot of soy sauce and a lot of sugar and mirin, and it becomes uh, like a jammy kind of seaweed pickle. There it is. It's delicious. And it's so salty and so sweet 
that you only need a little spoonful of it to flavor a whole bowl of rice or a yeah, rice it's bowl. It's kind of like licorice. Yeah, bit. it's yeah. very licorice-y. Uh, in fact, <laughs> we just did an episode of The Kitchen Cabinet in uh, Southend where I made cockle tsukudani out of local cockles. And the guy who, who, there was a cockle farmer there and he was like, tastes like cockle licorice, which doesn't sound very good. <laughs> um, no. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't. Say. But it's really, really good and it's really economical because um, obviously if you're a fisherman, you sell all your prime catch to like the sushi chefs mainly or to whoever's buying them and then you're left with just like the dregs you're left with the baby fish you're left with the the baby tiny crabs uh the seaweeds and then you learn what to do with them and i think that's really cool and interesting that you make something so delicious from what would normally be discarded i want to talk quickly about cooking from this book which we've thoroughly enjoyed me and Sally today thank you yeah we made uh bento for you guys <laughs> I think what we find a lot of time intimidating with Japanese food is that you do have that kind of feeling that you need to kind of quit your job and dedicate your life to cooking rice yeah which is not you know really it's not true I think we cooked <laughs> really nice rice and uh, <laughs> you, will, you will be the judge you will be the judge I will say about Japanese food uh, is that it's it's very much like any other kind of food in that there is restaurant quality Japanese food yeah and then there's home cooking and you don't have to worry about it being perfect or beautiful or anything like that uh, to make Japanese food at home it just has to be delicious and that's achievable making perfect rice for the perfect sushi that's hard but making good rice to have alongside some teriyaki chicken or something that is very doable very doable if I can do it, so can you. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course the ingredients are really easy to find. Definitely, yeah. yeah. We cooked the Japanese rice. We had a, our Japanese pastry chef had a beady eye watching <laughs> over it. She was, I think she was wanting us to fail a little bit. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. And we made a teriyaki chicken and egg, which is from the yes. konbi uh, section of the book. From the sandwich, It's meant yeah. to be a sandwich, but you got a bento instead. Because you're getting a sandwich for dessert, but uh, uh, we'll talk about this later. We made the cucumber and wakame salad, which yeah. is gorgeous. And lovely little pickles. Oh, daikon pickles, yeah. Yeah. It looks uh, great. I really am impressed. Yeah, I genuinely so am. Uh, well, you know, we always say if you enjoy it it's our cooking and if you don't it's his recipes um, but I, I think everyone's a winner from this and for dessert guys we made uh, Ichigo Sando yes I'm pronouncing it correctly the Ichigo Sando uh, which is a strawberry sandwich is exactly what it sounds like it's strawberries and whipped cream put between two slices of sweet cheap white bread so it's like the poor man's Victoria Sponge, basically. Um, but it's great. They, they sell them at convenience stores. They sell them right alongside all the savory sandwiches. So when I first saw them, I was really confused. I was like, is it savory? Uh, but no, it's like it's a little... Uh, think of it as something you'd have with afternoon tea. I want to thoroughly recommend for you this book. I We both, me and Said, were just aching. You know, <laughs> now I'm thinking, oh, we're going to wait the Olympics out. But... I think we should all go together. <laughs> I think I a non would... Honey and Co. food tour. Oh my God, that will be Let's the dream. Pitch there. We would eat so much. Oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, they're gonna close Japan after this. <laughs> <laughs> I want you guys to help me by giving a big hand to this guy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks so 
much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey and Co. or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. A special thanks to our own Louisa Cornford for her wonderful research. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. 